I thank God for all who have led us in worship today through prayer, scripture, and song. Today we begin a new sermon series called Rediscovering Church. We're going to be looking at important scriptures on the subject of the church. And today I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 16. I'll read verses 13 through 20 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is The Flawed and Indestructible Church. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We find Jesus and his disciples roaming 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in a district called Caesarea Philippi. Herod the Great had renamed it Caesarea and had built a temple there for Caesar, a white marble sanctuary for the veneration of the Roman emperor. Previously, the town was known as Panius, after the Greek god Pan, who was worshipped there. And before that, it was a center for worshipping the Canaanite god Baal. Caesarea Philippi, therefore, had been a venue for exalting the gods of the Canaanites and the Greeks, as well as the ruler of Rome. As Jesus enters this locale, pervaded by various gods and imperial power, he asks his disciples how he stacks up. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, the disciples report. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In the public opinion polls, Jesus is doing right well. Yet to call Jesus a prophet, while accurate, is inadequate. The renowned Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, It's possible to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not right ones. A high opinion of him 
and yet not high enough. So Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the single most important question ever posed. Anytime, anywhere, by anyone. No inquiry in history even compares. The you is emphatic in the Greek. Jesus comes to each of us saying, who do you say that I am? Nobody can answer for you. Who do you say that I am? To this most important question, Peter gives the most important answer. You are the Messiah. Peter is the first human being to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the Christ, the King. So much for King Caesar and the white marble temple down the street. Peter adds that Christ is the Son of the living God. Although Baal, Pan, and other deities had been honored on that same plot of land, Peter's confession elevates Jesus above all who had been exalted in Caesarea Philippi. Notice that Jesus is not called a Messiah or a Son of God. Peter's confession uses the definite article. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. In light of Peter's confession, we can see that Christ did not walk into Caesarea Philippi to join the ranks of other deities or to stand in line with other rulers. He came as the one deserving all worship, devotion, and obedience. Theologians refer to this as the particularity of Christ. Jesus Christ is unique among religious figures and world leaders. To say this is not to disrespect persons of other faiths or philosophies who are neighbors that we love and colleagues in the common good. But it is to stand with Peter and direct all of our focus to one person, all of our obedience to one master, all of our devotion to one teacher, all of our hope to one savior, all of our loyalty to one king, and all of our worship to one divinity. To declare with Peter that Jesus is the Christ is to gather up our dedication, our confidence, our faith, and our trust, and to dump them all on one person. Notice that Jesus doesn't deny Peter's claim that he is the Messiah. Nor does he blush or play it down saying, Oh, Peter, I'm not all that. Instead, Jesus receives Peter's soaring statement about his identity and says, Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter didn't make up the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, nor did he come to this conclusion by a stroke of his own brilliance. Rather, it was a gift of revelation from God. 
the doctrine of divine revelation, rests on the simple principle that God alone knows God, so God alone can offer knowledge of God. Thankfully, God graciously reveals to faulty humans like Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter in this passage is not the recipient of an award of merit, but a receptacle of divine grace and a channel of divine revelation. It's likewise with anyone who declares faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. The word play in Greek translates, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Here ensues a long-standing debate. Roman Catholics asserts that Jesus founds the church on Peter, but Protestants say that Jesus founds the church on Peter's confession of faith. To the Catholic point, it's obvious that Peter plays a key role in the church's founding. He was a leader, not only of the 12 disciples, but also of the early church in Jerusalem. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved by being the first to call Jesus the Messiah. Peter became the first member of the church. However, to the Protestant point, the main thrust of the passage is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Indeed, the Gospels of Mark and Luke tell the same story, yet focus totally on Peter's confession of faith. The key is Peter's proclamation, not his personality. Indeed, Peter has been walking with Jesus for some time, but only when he says, you are the Messiah, does Jesus say, on this rock I will build my church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, not Peter. Still, the fact that Peter was the first to confess Jesus as Messiah shows that Christian faith is personal, but not perfect. Peter messed up again and again and again. Again, just a few verses later, Jesus tells the disciples he is going to be killed. Peter says, no. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's the original church member Jesus is talking to. Get behind me, Satan. Later, Peter denies three consecutive times that he even knows Christ. I do not know the man, he says. That's the original church member we're talking about. Like its original member, the church is not faultless, not even close. The church has a long history of shortcomings, sins, and injustices. 
In the four Gospels, the word church appears in only two passages. The other one, besides Matthew 16, 18, is Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where Jesus says, if a church member sins against you, point it out when the two of you are alone. If he won't listen, take one or two people with you to talk to him. And if that doesn't work, take him before the entire church and call him out for accountability. So of the two passages in the Gospels that mention the word church, one of them is all about sin and conflict. It showcases the ugly side of the church. It admits that the church is flawed. But the other text that mentions the church, Matthew 16, 18, has Jesus saying, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Notice that the builder of the church is Christ himself. I will build my church. We aren't building the church. Christ is. Notice that Christ is the owner of the church as well. I will build my church, he says. The church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. The church is Christ's creation and Christ's possession. Because the church is built by Christ and because the church belongs to Christ, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. The gates of Hades was a phrase signaling the doorway to the underworld whereby Satan and demonic forces emerge to assault the church. So Jesus is saying that the church is stronger than evil, stronger than the devil, and stronger than all the powers of hell. The gates of Hades was also a phrase evoking death because Hades was known as the abode of the dead. The gates of Hades tried to hold Jesus down after he was crucified and buried, but he burst forth in resurrection from the grave. Likewise, the church that Jesus builds is stronger than the grave, stronger than the cemetery, stronger than all the powers of death. Although the church is composed of flawed members like Peter and you and me, Hades is no match for it. Hades and the church are locked in an epic battle like two bulls locking horns, but Hades cannot handle the church. Yes, the church is made of sinners, but the church is made by the Savior. Christ is so good, so wise, so loving, and so powerful that he can take flawed folks and build a community so fortified that all the powers of Hades combined cannot prevail against it. Years ago when I was pastoring in Tennessee, one of our deacons, whose name was Bob, was standing at the exterior door of the church after our Sunday services had concluded. 
a man had come to the door at that time after the services were over and was asking if he could come inside and pray in our sanctuary. Bob asked me if that would be okay. I said, sure. So Bob and I walked the man into the sanctuary. He went down to the front and center and knelt there on the ground. He pulled a sheet of paper out of his pocket and he looked at it and he began to make odd hand gestures and he whispered a bunch of stuff that I couldn't understand. This went on for two or three minutes as Bob and I were standing aside. When he finished, the man looked up at me and with a strange fervor in his voice, he said, do you know what I just did? I just prayed to the devil in your sanctuary. <laughs> I just prayed curses in here. Bob looked concerned. And I looked at the man and smiled and said, Sir, the God we serve is far greater than the devil or anybody else you could call on, so we aren't worried about that. He seemed disappointed that I wasn't more upset. Bob and I peaceably walked him out, and on the way out, this man began to share with us about his troubled life and he ended up in tears. Bob and I tried to minister to him as best we could. The point is not to underestimate the powers of evil which are formidable. The point is to claim Jesus' promise that the church will prevail against the gates of Hades. It is a promise from Christ that we can rely on, and it's one of the most uh, uplifting and empowering things Jesus ever said. I have read about the decline of Christianity in the UK and the US. I've read reports about seminaries and congregations, many of them closing their doors. I've read projections that over the next several decades the church will continue to decline in our nation, but I've also read here in Matthew chapter 16 where Christ says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It doesn't mean the church won't struggle. It means the church won't surrender. It doesn't mean the church won't be battered. It means the church won't be beaten. It doesn't mean the church won't falter. It means the church won't fold. It doesn't mean the church won't mess up. It means the church won't give up. It doesn't mean the church won't face storms. It means the church will outlast them all. All the recent coverage of Hurricane Ian has reminded me of Hurricane Michael. Four years ago, Hurricane Michael struck the Florida panhandle, leveling Mexico Beach. When the dust settled, though, there was one beachfront house standing majestically amid the wreckage. As journalist Patricia Mazie reported, it was no accident that this particular house survived. Its owners had built it, they said, 
for the big one. They did not even consult the minimum building requirements for wind resistance, which call for 120 to 150 mile per hour winds. Instead, they designed the house to withstand 250 mile per hour winds. They had special screws drilled into the walls and 40 foot pilings buried into the ground. The house was fashioned from poured concrete and reinforced with rebar and steel cables. Minimum space was left under the roof so that the wind couldn't get under there and blow it off. And the elevation of the home was intentionally high so that a substantial storm surge could flow beneath it without damaging the structure. In every detail, the house was specifically designed to withstand a monster storm. The design, of course, cost more than normal construction, but while the duplexes next door got crushed and the homes across the street were wiped to their foundations and virtually the entire area was leveled, this one house stood resolute amid what was at the time the third strongest storm ever to strike the U.S. mainland. Similarly, friends, Jesus has built the church to withstand spiritual storms. He has not built the church thinking about what would be cheapest, but he has invested quite a cost in constructing it. He has built the church with the love of the cross. He has built the church with the power of the resurrection. He has built the church with the truth of his teaching. He has built the church with the infusion of his own divine presence. He has built the church to withstand the winds of evil. He has built the church to hold up in the floods of adversity. He has built the church to prevail against the onslaught of Hades. Although the church has many difficult challenges, Christ has built it for the big one. <laughs> he has built a church that will never fold, a church that will never cave, a church that will never die, a church that will outlast evil, a church that will outlast suffering, a church that will outlast sin, a church that will outlast injustice, a church that will outlast pandemics, a church that will outlast death, and a church that will prevail against all the powers of Hades through the greater power of divine love. All who confess that Jesus is the Messiah join a community as unconquerable as he is. All who confess that Jesus is Savior join a community as indomitable as he is. All who confess that Jesus is the Christ join a community as indestructible as he is. Amen. <laughs>